0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, making acquisition as agile as software development all across government, and the good news and bad news on the new Fatara scorecard. It's Monday, August 1st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Chief Information Security Officer at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives is stepping down. Jay Ribeiro writes he'll leave ATF August 26th after almost four years there. He hasn't said what his next move will be. You can read more about that story and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology and Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's happening September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The sponsors of a new IT acquisition bill in the Senate say it would support more and better agile acquisition in the executive branch. The bill would make it easier for agencies to buy commercial technology. Dan Chenick is executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. He's former branch chief for information policy and technology at the Office of Management and Budget. Dan, this concept is one that I'm hearing more and more about. What's the definition of agile technology acquisition? What does that mean to some practitioner at an agency level. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Francis. Always great to be here. Um, So you think about traditional procurement and people think about long requirements, documents, you know, multiple RFP drafts, big proposals with hundreds of pages of documentation, half of which are, you know, official sort of needing bureaucratic requirements. Um, And then you think of an award where a contractor kind of gets a big a big award, um, and then you know goes and does its work for you know months, sometimes even years, and then comes out with a set of services or technologies or a combination of the two that you know in the past have often gone over budget and and behind schedule and that sort of thing. So one of the thoughts is how do you accelerate value in the procurement lifecycle? And this has been a discussion for some time, um, uh without Violating the FAR or other sort of you know procurement norms or program integrity rules around fi- a responsibility to the to the taxpayer. Um, so the idea of agile procurement or um, uh, you know incremental procurement really grew out of the agile software movement, um, which talked about you know iterative development, uh, customer feedback, integrated project teams, um, and applying those sorts of principles to the procurement system. And so this means, you know, rather than having uh, like a large requirements, um, uh, traditional procurement process, you could do um, sort of a vendor show and tell to see, you know, r- rather than create a big giant document, you could have people come in and do a demonstration and then maybe sort of award a first round of a contract to, let's say, three or four companies, all of whom would be working on turning prototypes to pilots and then, you know, developing scale from that so that you're kind of not um, relying on a single source, but you're getting multiple inputs. So this type of incremental, rapid development is what people tend to mean when they talk about agile, agile acquisition.
0: How practical is that, given what we have to deal with with the FAR?
1: So it's it's certainly allowable. Um, GSA did a, um, a agile procurement blanket purchase agreement a number of years ago. Um, something. This is something that the U.S. Digital Service and 18F, the at GSA, the the digital uh, enablement organizations um, have uh, proposed. Actually, back in the Obama administration, and um, there's interestingly a new pilot pro- procurement on the defense side of the defense. Uh, I think it's the Agile Procurement Pilot Program, or, or words to that effect, in the uh, 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA where DOD is doing experimentation uh, in this. Um, DIUX, the Defense uh, Innovation Unit, has been working on uh, similar types of procurement. We wrote a report, uh, our center did, around a procurement innovation um, that often it gets referred to as other transactions authorities, which are credit sort of authorities to bring in R&D from new sources or from existing sources in new ways. Uh, new sources being companies that are providing to the government. And um, and that report sort of captured a lot of these. So there there are ways to do it. Um, It it's not how it's always been done. And and for good reasons, people sort of built up processes. People in government um, industries responded to those processes, so it's changing a lot of sort of cultural norms um, to be able to to uh, get there.
0: Yeah, you used the word I was going to because when you say the phrase, it's not how it's always been done. That's always a kind of a stumbling block for people in government.
1: Yeah, and that's that's by design. Um, so, and and it's long before the topic of agile procurement came across, and and it you know our government is is designed to be kind of slow and steady so that we don't uh, incur too much risk um but you know if we're thinking about the pace of check technological change we need government to be more agile we need more government to be able to try out things experiment learn from uh, learn from failures build on successes and um that that's a that mindset is being i think brought forward more for more forthrightly in a number of different areas uh procurement being one uh, we are we at the IBM center are working with the National Academy of Public Administration now for the last 2 years on the Agile Government Center which is looking at sort of applying these techniques to policy making, program development, program implementation, regulatory development so there are a number of different functions of government that can can benefit from this approach
0: does it work the same way that agile development works in the software sphere i mean can you well, re- can you really do a government procurement in that iterative of a fashion, because the complaint that vendors always say about agile development is, uh, it potentially in the procurement realm is, well, why would I invest in a in a scrum when I'm not sure I'm going to get the next round of work?
1: Well, the opposite of that thought is that a lot of vendors don't like to get involved in the first round of creation because they they worry about a conflict of interest, ruling them out of the fi- of the subsequent procurement, and this this would be a way to kind of not. Uh, to take that on directly, and to say that you know it's a it's a benefit, it's commercial best practice. In fact, to bring in innovative companies and and have them work on the design, and then maybe identify one or two that that would be uh, that would be in, in uh, follow on sort of development and, and operations. Um, uh, so there are there are ways to accomplish um, uh, this within uh, within the current rules, and and it's a question of you know does the agency uh, want to enable multiple vendors to come in and demonstrate um uh w- how this works uh to do so in a way that they, the agency iterates and sort of says all right we like these three components of what you propose but those two we are not so happy with but this other company over here they're really good at those two so we want to kind of build something going forward that brings together maybe in some sort of a joint venture and, and having those kinds of of discussions is something that that you know benefits both parties. I've sometimes in the past said, you know, wouldn't it be great if, you know, not necessarily to to one vendor, but you know, a lot of the time from the government's perspective, there's one, you know, one company's like, you know, the the best, but it's an it's a close call. And and like they've got stuff that's 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 you know, they could they can work on, and another company's got stuff they can work on. If you think about an agile iterative procurement, it's hand in hand with maybe thinking about how do you develop a procurement strategy that's more flexible and nimble and takes advantage of the best that that multiple companies bring to an offer. Sort of like multiple cloud um, uh, environments in an agency where you take advantage of, of different strengths of different cloud providers.
0: All right. What are the other stumbling blocks potentially to doing this well, besides the cultural one that we've already talked about, Dan?
1: Well, funding is an issue, um, certainly. Uh, the... The traditional budget process, um, which is a long tail, you know, it takes three to four years from the time an agency thinks of an idea, assuming it's got an annual appropriation um, to the time it spends the money, um, uh, is an issue. So if you want to do an agile procurement and you're spending money that, you know, is going to be spent three or four years from now, or you're trying to sort of bend the rules about money that was awarded, you know, two years ago, but is on a um, multi-year kind of cycle, uh, that's difficult. Another stumbling block is in the commercial space, a lot of companies will invest up front and sort of work on these iterative processes, and then they'll know that they could take a risk, but that the return will come in terms of savings that they provide. And in procurement terms, this is often called share and savings. And in government, you need special authorization to do that because, um, uh, because of the Anti-Deficiency Act, which requires government to have money for everything it pays for, um, that tends to require you to have money in the government account that pays for the activity up front. So it, it limits the industry's ability to put something forward that, and share the risk with government. So there are special statutory authorizations that um, or exemptions for that. Energy savings performance contracts are one form of that that uh, the Department of Energy now has um, uh, and other federal agencies where uh, uh, energy savings companies can come in and say, oh, right, you're spending, let's say, a million dollars on energy for this building. We can actually cut your cost to 500000 and then we'll take our contract payment out of the savings, and then you get to keep some of the savings too. So there, there are creative ways to to go forward. Uh, it's just a matter of sort of thinking about what are some precedents that that the government can build on.
0: Dan Chenick, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Francis.
0: You can read more about Agile acquisition in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on the next episode, fixing the IT problems at the Thrift Savings Plan. Kim Weaver of the TSP is on the next Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Changes to the Fatar grading system push grades down across government, according to the new scorecard, out Thursday. Eight agencies are down, each by about one full grade. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. She testified about the Fatar scorecard. Uh, Carol, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is different about this scorecard? As you warned us last time you were here, it looks different today than it did last time. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Yeah, so two major changes to the scorecard, um, scorecard 14, as compared to the previous one, that is the sunset of the existing data center category. Um, That one, you know, everybody unilaterally agreed at the previous hearing that the data center optimization initiative Um, has done extremely well, which is why all the agencies had the straight A's. And so Congress felt that it was time to sunset that category. The other major change in the grading methodology this go around relates to cybersecurity. Um, In this particular iteration, OMB has not issued their cyber cross-agency priority goal data. And so as a result, the only publicly available cyber information we had were the IG assessments. And so that was the basis for the grades that you see in this 14th iteration. Uh, So those were the two major changes.
0: A couple of things there I want to ask about. What success stories or lessons do you think we can learn from the DCOI that could apply to other aspects of the scorecard? Because you're right, I recall the conversation around 13 was, everybody's done great, so this is something we can let go.
2: Yeah, I think the major... The major area or the key to the success is the fact that it was a provision that was codified in FATARA, And so it was a sustained implementation and oversight by Congress through the FATARA scorecard that really led to its success because agencies knew that if they wanted the A grade, they had to continue to keep this as a priority.
0: Is there anything uh, about the data center optimization initiative that could potentially result in an agency backsliding and it being something that maybe needs to come back to the scorecard or at least needs to come back to some kind of oversight?
2: Well, I think that if agencies stop reevaluating their current inventories of data centers um, and looking to see to what extent they could further push more applications into the cloud, Um, then that's where you would see a backslide in that agencies become stagnant and so that the remaining data centers that they have open, um, you know, if there's a portion of those that could be virtualized and and further consolidated, um, that's what we want to see. But if agencies don't continue to press that issue, then that's where we could see a backslide.
0: You mentioned the cyber grades. Cyber grade's not great overall. Lots of orange and red, D's and F's. What's the cause of that? You mentioned it's Inspector General reviews from 2021, I see on the scorecard. Um, is there, the FISMA uh, audits, is there something about that that's problematic compared to what the posture of the agencies actually is on cybersecurity, Carol? Or is, are the agencies still this many years into this still in, in that bad a shape cybersecurity-wise?
2: Well, I think the the problem here that we have is we, you know, the the IG assessments is just one metric. So it's an important one, but it's not necessarily representative of the cybersecurity posture for an org for the agencies. And so um, until OMB makes available the cybersecurity cross-agency priority goal data, we just have that single point of you know, that single metric to rely on. And that, again, is, I think, unfair to the agencies. Um, And again, it's not an issue with the scorecard itself. The scorecard works fine. It's that the publicly available information that we use in that grading, um, we need to have more more data inputs there.
0: What do we know, if anything, about OMB's progress on releasing those cross-agency priority goals that might result in a better outcome for the agent or a better, a more accurate measure? I guess is the best way to mm-hmm. put it. Next time,
2: well, Chairman Connolly indicated at the hearing that he had a conversation with OMB. Um, I believe the night before the hearing, and I'm not exactly sure the reasons why the the, the cap goal data was not released. But everybody was in agreement that um, it needs to be remediated as soon as possible because they are out of compliance with the law. No, and I do believe that OMB um, is making every effort, according to Mr. Connolly, that um, they're going to make it right.
0: I note that the network's transition to EIS grades are not much better this time than they were last time. There's a few A's uh, and uh, some B's and C's. Still a fair amount of Ds and Fs. What's behind that? Are, are is there agencies giving any kinds of reasons why they're struggling with the transition off networks?
2: Yeah. So um, in comparison with the previous scorecard, there were seventeen agencies that had either a D or F. This go around we've got fourteen. Um, it's better, but agencies still aren't moving fast enough. The primary reasons why that agencies have told us is you know the complexity of the telecommunications requirements um, as well as a lack of resources available to um, to put towards that initiative to get those comprehensive inventories and start moving them to the new set of contracts and you know with regard to the complexity of the requirements as well as i believe um, complexity of, of the contracting issues Um, GSA does have a lot of resources, a lot of good resources available to those agencies. So I would strongly encourage them to take advantage of them to be able to work through those issues and get off of those legacy contracts.
0: Uh, I'm looking broadly across the card now, Carol, and the historical scorecard grades agency-wide. The the trend really overall is in the right direction, isn't it? I mean, the first scorecard back in 2015, your predecessor – Dave Pounder made sure to point out way back when that this was not something that was intended to be able to beat agencies over the head with. But the trend lines that we see over uh, seven years are the trend lines that we hope to see over seven years, I would imagine. Is that a fair estimate on my part?
2: It sure is. And that's exactly right. Um, we've seen agencies make a lot of great progress since the first uh, release of the scorecard. And again, I think that um, the scorecard itself has been a great vehicle for agencies in making sure that they in, they have the FITAR provisions as a top priority and to continue to implement the law. Um, and I think that the takeaway here in looking at this great success is the scorecard needs to evolve even farther. Um, so that's we are capturing those new and emerging areas that 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 we need in order to um, make sure that agencies further um, improve on their IT modernization.
0: Efforts. Okay, I want to talk about what that looks like in a moment, Carol, but there's two things on the scorecard that are positives that I want to make sure that we highlight. One of them is, um, agency CIO authority enhancements regarding software, only two D's and two F's. Everybody else is in A's and B's. That's another success story that strikes me. I'm not sure people would have anticipated a couple of years
1: back.
2: Exactly. About 82% of the agency software projects are now being um, being developed, utilizing incremental development, which is you know a, a known best practice. Um, for IT modernization. So that's great news there on that front.
0: And the other one is uh, chief information officers as the the direct report is either the secretary or the deputy secretary of the agency or equivalent. Um, This one, we only have uh, two agencies, Justice and Labor, who are not reporting directly to either the secretary or deputy And this says here underneath this column on the scorecard to be sunset. This is such a success that you're not going to track it anymore.
2: I believe Congress does want to sunset this, this area. Um, I, but they're going to keep a very eagle eye approach to it because again, um, you know, CIOs need to have that equal footing with their other C-suite executives, and this emphasis in the the organization structure can't be understated. And and again, Mr. Connolly at the hearing made you know great note of that.
0: All right, what do you think the scorecard looks like in iteration fifteen in six months, Carol? What what's likely to change that CIOs should start thinking about now?
2: Uh, in my mind, it's the the legacy IT issue again, over 80% of the $122 billion that are spent annually on IT goes towards the operation maintenance of old systems. And in order to improve um, our systems and also improve their cybersecurity posture, we got to move them into more modernized areas and more modernized systems. And so my my comments at the hearing were, were that let's take the the great success of portfolio stat and move that into the legacy IT space. So instead of this focus on the reduction of commodity IT systems, the IT infrastructure, the business systems, let's replicate that on the legacy IT side where we have this systematic dialogue between the senior agency executives and the federal CIO um, to have that focus and that attention paid to the the legacy IT systems in need of most attention, and then change that success metric or that 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 metric for for grades in that area from cost savings to the decommissioning of these legacy IT systems. So I think that's one key area that that should be on the horizon.
0: Carol Harris of the Government Accountability Office, always love having you on the program. Thanks very much.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Francis.
0: You can read Carol's work on the Fatara scorecard. Find a link to the new edition of the scorecard in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like The Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow with Kim Weaver from the TSP. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.